0: I'm Tokumbayare Bui, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. On May 25th, 2020, a black man named George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis by a police officer. This act launched countless protests. People took to the streets all over the world to demonstrate in solidarity and affirm that black lives matter. In this episode, we're doing something a bit different we're focusing on an issue that isn't mentioned in the SDGs, at least not by name. Today, we're talking about racism. The SDGs are all about the near future. By 2030, no one will be left behind. But consider goal 10, reduced inequalities. Or goal 16, promote peaceful and inclusive societies. Or goal four, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education. None of these goals are achievable if they don't address race-based discrimination. Many Canadians look at our neighbours to the south when they think of anti-black racism. And listen, I've heard it before. Something along the lines of, I'm glad it's not like that here. But make no mistake, this is our problem too. Education and access to learning is considered one of the foundations of Canada's social institutions. It's a public good. But even within the classroom, things aren't always equal for everyone. Canada ranks high in education by the OECD. And yet, according to Stats Canada, despite most black youth wanting to obtain a university degree, they're proportionately less likely to think they'll be able to get one. The United Nations has a working group of experts on people of African descent, On their mission to Canada in 2017, they were concerned to learn that Black students have disproportionately low educational attainment, high dropout rates, suspensions, and expulsions. Black students were also more likely to be streamed out of academic or university track programs. The working group concluded that the quality of education received by Black students has an impact on their access to future employment and income. We know that access to education is a vital step in helping narrow the inequality gap in Canada. So for this episode, we're focusing on anti-Black racism and how it prevents students from achieving equity in Canada's educational system. I spoke with Mante Malepo, a lawyer and human rights advocate, to learn more.
1: My name is Mante Malepo and I'm the Equity and Diversity Advisor for the Ottawa Catholic School Board.
0: Mante has served on the board of directors for Amnesty International Canada, and she co-founded the Ottawa-based nonprofit Parents for Diversity in 2016. And when she's not working on all that, she's working with the Ottawa Catholic School Board to improve equity and diversity for their students.
1: You know, anti-Black racism is really deeply entrenched within many sectors, including education. And so we see it play out with Black students' being disproportionately disciplined in the education system. There was a case that went to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. A decision was rendered this year of a six year old girl who was shackled by two police officers in Ontario. So we call that adultification bias. I think that plays in there, you know, the the perception that educators and other people have about black students perceiving them to be a lot older than they are, which leads to this disproportionate use of discipline.
0: This isn't easy to talk about, but what Mante is referring to is back in 2016. Police placed a six-year-old girl on her stomach and cuffed her at the wrists and ankles for 28 minutes at her elementary school. In March, the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal found that race was a factor, and that the police officer's actions were, quote, disproportionate to what was necessary. She was six. Now, back to Mante.
1: We know from the data from John Hopkins University, for instance, that when a Black student has a Black educator, they're more likely to graduate or to go on to post-secondary education. Our Black kids don't have an opportunity to see themselves reflected in their teachers and administrators. When you have Black administrators and system leaders, they're able to create a curriculum and and implement an education system that is more likely to be anti-racist. So anti-Black racism manifests in, in, in many different ways.
0: Now, speaking to your expertise in law, you're quoted in an article for the CBC where you say, we often forget that schools have a legal obligation to provide a learning environment that is free from discrimination, harassment, and bullying. How has policy itself been responsible for enabling anti-Black racism in Canadian schools?
1: I always bring it down to who gets to decide mm-hmm. who gets to write these policies, who gets to interpret them? who gets to consult on the development and implementation of these policies? That will really inform the extent to which these policies are anti-racist, right? Yeah, when we look at how policies are being developed, do we have mm-hmm. black communities consulting and providing their input on these policies? Are we holding school boards, ministries uh, of education, you know, policy officials accountable by ensuring that there's a diverse representation of voices. If we're talking about creating policies uh, to address anti-Black racism, and we have people who don't share that lived experience or those identities developing and implementing these policies, how can we assure ourselves that these policies are going to address anti-Black racism. So if a teacher, for instance, in a JK class is is committed to anti-racist teaching practices, but, you know, the superintendent, uh, the administrator, or the uh, board of trustees, or the director of education don't approach pedagogy, curriculum, or leadership from an anti-racist perspective, it's very difficult then to implement an anti-racist school system and education so that, you know, we're thinking about the distribution and purchase of resources, pedagogy, professional development, policies and procedures uh, on anti-racism. They require a top-down approach. They have to be comprehensive
0: across the school board. Canada's educational system has a lot of moving pieces, with many different areas that prop up the status quo. But Mante knows of one point in the system that is obligated to take your feedback and represent you and your child's best interests. It's a position that has the power to make some real change in your school district. And chances are you voted for them in your city's last election.
1: The unique role that school board trustees have within a school board is that they are the only elected officials within the school board. So they approve multi-million dollar budgets. So they have a unique role to really guide the direction of a school board. And when they work in unison with the executive, the director of education, the superintendents together, that relationship, that symmetry is really critical to fostering equity and inclusive education and an anti-racist education. Mm-hmm. And so if we're thinking about communities that are very racialized, you know, what are trustees doing to give voice or to give space? to those community voices are they going out into the community and listening to the needs and interests of their constituents that's something that teachers or you know superintendents or other educators and administrators that's not part of their mandate right their jobs are more confined but as elected officials that's a very unique role that they play I see within our board, you know, how our trustees, they approved the declaration in support of the UN Decade for People of African Descent, which is really integral to addressing systemic anti-Black racism. They approved a huge, huge budget to purchase diverse resources for our schools to reflect the diverse racial identities of students and staff within our board. And so, in terms of addressing anti-black racism, I think a big critical piece is to acknowledge that systemic racism exists, not just within society, but also within the education system.
0: For the past number of years, I've worked with children and youth in the social sector, and most of that work has taken place within public schools. Consider me the fun guidance counselor you talk to because he's not actually a teacher. In my time in schools, I've seen how race affects the way students are treated and how they see themselves within the educational system. Seeing this issue from both sides, as a black kid who grew up in Edmonton, and then becoming a pseudo-authority figure in a school, students of color have a different, often tougher experience in these spaces, and they need advocates. This is where parents like Charlene Grant come in. Charlene is a mom of three, and she co-founded an organization called Parents of Black Children, Charlene took what she learned standing up for her own children and helps other parents advocate against anti-Black racism in schools. She calls herself a systems navigator.
2: I became a system navigator because of my oldest son, Ziff, we call him Ziff, when he started coming home with stories and experiences he was having at school. And some culture, like I know Caribbean culture, African culture, we're very strict with our children. When we come here, we come with the notion that teachers are right. Teachers are to be respected. So when you get that call or that note, you tend off the bat, believe it.
0: From early on in education, Black kids are confronted with a more hostile experience than others. Watched more closely, policed for their tone, hair or clothing. When a parent feels that their kid has faced discrimination and they're seeking reassurance or resources, they call Charlene. Our associate producer Sabrina reached Charlene Grant over Zoom at her home in early November to talk about what it was like raising her eldest son, Ziff.
2: So my son experience started when he was in grade two, and it never stopped. He had no issues in grade one. Actually, the grade one teacher at the time told me when we first met her, she said, this boy is so bright, he's so intelligent, looks you in the eyes, he has a zest for learning. And then she said, but you're going to have problems with him. And at the time, I didn't know what she meant, and she didn't elaborate. I remember asking her, what do you mean? She goes, well, you know, they're not ready for him. And at the time, I didn't know what she meant. I didn't know she was giving me a heads up. The reason why she said it to me, she was a white teacher, but she had black children. So that was her way of giving me a heads up.
0: It wasn't long before Charlene started to get what the teacher was warning her about. Ziff wasn't treated the same way as other students. He was often getting singled out for bad behavior, like being outspoken. But Charlene has always raised her son to be assertive and honest.
2: I always say there's no adult that like, you can't tell them when they have done you something wrong. And am like, he was in grade four. And the principal called me. She goes, yeah, your son said something today. And uh, you have to tell him he can't do that. I go, what the hell did he say? Like, what now? Oh, he told some teacher that she was wrong and she can't say but in an apology. And I'm like, okay, he told me about that story that she was supposed to apologize to him. And in her apology, she said, but. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there. My mom said, there's no but in an apology. My husband used to say, "Hun, you got to teach him another way to do it. Because at the end of the day, he's still young and he's always going to be wrong in their eyes. So we started telling him other ways in which to navigate and, and advocate for himself. But when white kids do it, we hear... They're articulate. They are assertive. When black kids do it, they're aggressive and they're this and they're this. All the negative words that is used to describe our children when they're just being themselves and showing great leadership.
0: The way Ziff was treated at school meant Charlene and her husband had to change their parenting at home. But school is having an impact on so much more. It was having an impact on Ziff's self-esteem. Because
2: I would get so many phone calls, and they were always negative, I started putting sticky notes in his lunchbox. I would say stuff like, you are going to make big stride in this world. You're, so, you're going to be so influential. You know, I love you more than life itself. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. You show them who you are in everything that you do. This was my way, i would be honest with you, at the time, me trying to parent from being at work. Because my phone was always on my desk waiting for that phone call and you know you know I remember that experience he actually spoke about it recently and I remember thinking I don't remember speaking race in front of him at that young age but he was able to recognize that
0: Charlene remembered the exact moment when she discovered just how much all of this was affecting her son but it wasn't from what she read in her son's report card or something the principal called home about it was from what she found in her son's desk during a parent-teacher meeting back in grade five.
2: And in his desk, he has a Ziploc bag filled with sticky notes. It had such an impact on him, and I didn't realize it until that moment when I realized he was keeping them. And I realized he looked forward to these notes. I literally sat there with tears running down my face and said, oh my gosh, I could only imagine. Look at me, I cry every time I, t- I, I remember that. I could only imagine what he must be going through on a daily basis. And the boy kept them. I still have them. And that was only grade five.
0: Fast forward a few years, and Ziff is in high school. He plays high-level basketball. It's after gym class. He's with a group of friends on campus. They're all white. Ziff's black. A staff member asks them why they're not in uniform. His friends get off easy. But when it comes to Ziff, things escalate.
2: She looked on the ground and said to my son, you're not in uniform. He goes, yes, it's it's in my bag. So she goes, go to the office. And he goes, wait, what? Like, he's confused. She goes, if you don't go to the office right now, I will speak to your coach and you'll never play basketball in this school ever again. Next thing you know, my son was suspended for two days.
0: Charlene calls the school and leaves a message. When she doesn't hear back in an hour, she sends an email saying she'll be at the school first thing Monday morning.
2: My son had a tournament the next day that he was playing at McMaster, which is a school that was heavily recruiting him. The coach called me to ask if I, if I checked my email. I said, no. He goes, check your email. This woman sent a letter out with her and the principal on it. She cannot meet with me until the Thursday of the following week. And because he's now 18, because he had just turned 18 two months before, she will not be able to disclose any information to me. However, I need to tell him he's suspended. In her message, in that letter, she said it was up to the coach to play him or not. She knows he's in a tournament. So it's okay if he play and represent the school. Do you see the slave mentality in that? Like, oh, my gosh. It's okay if you represent the school, but you just can't be here. The coach begged us to let him stay. He goes, I will deal with it. It's up to me what I do. So I'll handle it. I later got a call on the Sunday from the principal agreeing to meet with me on the Monday. We drove. I took all my kids out of school because I didn't want to have to rush back to pick them up. We were in that meeting for four hours.
0: During the meeting, the vice principal reads a statement.
2: And then she said he was in her face, intimidating her. And then she said he was so close in her face and he's 6'4 and she felt scared. I said, you felt scared. Show me the cameras because there's cameras. She was, pardon me. I said, you could show me the cameras. Show me what he did. Those are some serious accusations, and I want to see because then I will deal with it myself. She goes, Well, it would take some time for us to get you the cameras. I said, I'll wait. Just get the cameras. Just go retract the videos and show it to me. And, I, and then, Well, we can't. Let's just finish off the meeting. I said, The security guard was in the room, right? She said, Yes. I said, Did the security guard intervene if he was that close? Well, no. Uh, I said, The secretary was there. Call the secretary in. The secretary came in and told a complete different story. And as she's telling the story, She's trying, to, she's trying to correct her. I said, are you going to coach her through to make her say what you want her to say? Because her story is different from yours. And then I saw them look at each other because they never bank on us asking for the secretary to come in. We asked for the coach to, to come in. And he had a completely different story as well. Long story short, the suspension was sponged from his record. But the point is he still stayed home for two days because it took a few days for it to happen end up sending a letter apologizing for his, his experience. Again, we still went through that trauma. It takes a toll on you to always have to fight to say, prove it, prove it, prove it. When we get hurt and harm and, and the, the racial violence that's happened to us and our children, and we don't see justice and we don't get it, and we have to go to court or go to the media to fight for it, it re-traumatizes us. We never end up getting over it. It, it. like it's a matter of survival, like really and truly it is. And you know, I, now I could say like we send our children in the lion's den every day. Our kids learn to navigate and advocate for themselves at such a young age.
0: Now you might hear stories like Charlene Grant's and think of it as an anomaly a particularly bad case, or an exception to the norm. But while Charlene and the children she represents are certainly exceptional, what they've gone through is a well-documented pattern. And it's not a new pattern either. Canada's last racially segregated school closed in Lincolnville, Nova Scotia in only 1983. And I'm embarrassed, by the way, to admit that I just learned this fact while working on this very episode perhaps because Black Canadian history is strangely absent from the school curriculum. The Ontario Black History Society released a video where they blacked out all of the content in an 8th grade history textbook except Black History, and out of the 255 pages of text, only 13 remained. Not a great score considering we have 400 years of Black Canadian history to work with. In fact, Canada has yet to formally acknowledge its own history of enslavement, Our renewed focus on Black Lives Matter has brought these issues to the forefront in 2020. But these issues are not new. And many folks have been working in this area for a long time. People like Dr. Carl Everton James from the Faculty of Education at York University. In 2017, Dr. James co-authored a report titled Towards Race Equity in Education, The Schooling of Black Students in the Greater Toronto Area. The question on the table... What happens in the schools, homes, and communities of black students that affect their educational outcomes? He found that black students were over twice as likely to be enrolled in non academic programs, programs that don't lead to college or university. But streaming as a policy officially ended in 1999, after it was first brought up as an issue in 1985. Even still, community members in the study said that they felt that Black students were more likely to be put in less challenging classes. And as Dr. James explained, even though official streaming has gone away, streaming itself is one of those things that's built into society. Here's Dr. James.
3: If we look at the Toronto District School Board data, when we look at that, less than 1% of Black kids are in gifted programs. Therefore, what does that say?
0: And while this report can't speak to every Black Canadian's experience, it's important to remember that a sizable portion of Canada's Black community lives in the GTA. Back in 2016, 36.9% of all Black Canadians lived in Toronto.
3: So this is not just happening through grade 8. This is not just happening in high school or in university. It's happening before then. So that's why we have to think about how race informs how people perceive the capacity of students and, therefore, teach to that student.
0: Now, I figured that the people of color in this study might fare worse than their white counterparts, and that's largely true. But what caught me off guard was when Dr. James divided the racialized groups. Across the board, Black students had worse outcomes than every other group. A full 42% of black students got suspended at least once before finishing high school. They were also more likely than anyone else to get expelled. The results of the study, while not completely surprising, are pretty stark. But let's be clear. Black students are every bit as capable as anyone else. I know black students come to school wanting to succeed. So if black students enter this system at the same baseline as everyone else, what gives?
3: I can always tell you of a story of a black child in some early grades in school, and he was doing quite well in, in his math class. And he was sitting beside uh, an Asian child, and the teacher looked around and saw these two kids talking, There's black and his Asian buddy sitting beside him talking and the teacher immediately assumed that the black child was getting the help, that wasn't the case. It was the other way around. So that should tell you the assumptions that teachers sometimes make in certain kinds of courses about the capacity of some students to think or do work in particular subject areas. And, and this is not just the teacher we're talking about. We're talking about a society that reproduces these kinds of stereotypes. The idea of who is going to be good at math. So just as we use these stereotypes of gender, the capacity of a child with disability to do certain kinds of activities, we, we use race in the very same way. So we, we build these stereotypes. And teachers will teach to these stereotypes. And you know what? Students work according to this stereotype. I think what I'm saying here, we can officially do away with streaming. But if stereotypes of certain groups exist in our society, they're going to be streamed. So therefore, it has to be a whole society issue because the schools is reproducing what some of the things that we see in our society.
0: A lot of the issues and recommendations identified by Dr. James have been said before. Hiring more black teachers, building stronger anti-discrimination practices, using more inclusive ways to gauge a student's learning ability. People have been calling for these things since the 1970s. If there are policies on the books, and decades of recommendations to draw from, why is this still happening?
3: It has to be a whole society issue. How long have we been talking about the absence of Black presence in the curriculum? How long have we been talking about telling Canadian history, starting with the colonialists and forgetting uh, First Nations people? Until we start telling the Canadian narrative, not starting with the Underground Railroad, but starting with 1628 and the enslavement of African people, and understand that that colonial heritage had something to do with what we have inherited today. And then George Floyd's murder is not new, um, but these kinds of things have existed in many, many years until we start teaching students about the realities of the Canadian society. It's not just to teach black students about the black existence in Canada, all students must know that information or else what good is the information then if the larger society just simply think, oh, that's only for those people to know about. So, therefore, I'm asking for a total restructuring thinking about education. It's not just about what goes on inside the classroom or in the schools. It's a large society project.
0: there's one factor that's highlighted over and over again in what Dr. James told us, and that's bias. Bias acts as a sort of filter and influences how we see the world. If we're serious about unlearning the way schools discriminate against black, brown, and indigenous students and rebuilding our educational system as safe and equitable for everyone, each one of us are going to need to think critically about the biases and presumptions we bring to the table. And we're going to have to actually start listening to Black people. Mante explained that recognizing systemic anti-Black racism is non-negotiable. We need representation at the highest levels of education. And Charlene taught us that parents need to be included every step of the way. Canada won't be successful in reaching the Sustainable Development Goals until it commits to recognizing and nurturing its Black students. Even officials at the highest levels of the U.N. voice their commitment to holding the institution accountable to its own human rights charter. Quote, To merely condemn expression and acts of racism is not enough. We need to go beyond and do more. With 2020 winding down, we've got nine years to achieve the agenda of no one left behind. And just three more years before the end of the international decade for people of African descent. Let's make it count. My name is Tokumbare Bui, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from Community Foundations of Canada. This show is produced by Ellen Payne-Smith. Our associate producer is Sabrina Brathwaite. Katie Jensen is our executive producer. Our music is by Elcon. This show is a project of Strategic Content Labs. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share, as it helps other people find the show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world.